Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Well, I invite you to go with me in your Bibles. We're going to dive right into Esther. Already talked to a couple of people this morning who have been reading from the book of Esther. I hope that you have cracked open those pages, and if not, do so. The book of Esther is a simple 10-chapter read. You will find it as, it's, it's as good of a story you're going to get from beginning to end. It's easy to go through, take you an hour, maybe two, and you will find it is an enthralling story. But it's more than a story for the Jewish community even to this day as they still celebrate Purim, the holiday, that speaks of God's deliverance, and they go right back to the story of Esther. Uh, that is a significant part of Esther. But I want to suggest today that Esther is, is also a handbook on worship. I have seen how God has developed this story in a way to help us to understand how to approach the King of Kings. How do we turn the heart of a king? And not in a manipulative way, but how can we know his heart? Esther is an amazing story of somebody who would get the heart of the king. So we're going to be looking at chapter 2 in just a moment. So if you can go to chapter 2. We are on a series, and the series has really been the last four months. We're going to be just wrapping it up in another couple of weeks. The series is called Reignite, and it's been a prayer. Oh, God, reignite a passion. The song we sang, reignite a passion in us, Lord. Too often the embers, the fire has gone down to embers. And we might go through the motions. The the motions of of, uh, being a Christian, of being a follower of Christ. The motions of going to church. Uh, maybe occasionally cracking open our Bible or listening to the latest devotion podcast somewhere. But if the truth be told, often the passion has gone. Maybe it was never there. Passion's not there. And if you can keep that passion aflame, I mean, that's a big job. I've discovered it's not how, it's not just the matter of having a moment with God, but to maintain an ever-increasing relationship with him that's much harder much harder because everything in this world goes against it it seems everything is vying for my affections and my attention and it's so easy to just because God's not screaming at me and everything else is and 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 they're legitimate too their family obligations workplace oh the work you know how's work oh it's overwhelming it's so it's crazy and so usually in that reply I'm hearing I don't really have much time for anything else. And so it vies for your affections with God. Now, does that matter? I mean, don't you just need to have a relationship with Jesus? Don't you just need to ask him to forgive you your sins and you're good for the rest? You know, you're going on to glory. And the answer is no. <laughs> he's, an, he's got an open invitation to know him, to be known by him. And that doesn't mean that it's intellectual. It means that I would know him deeply, intimately, and passionately. 
So the text we've had the last couple of weeks has been, somebody tell me, Psalms what? Psalms 84. Psalms 84. Actually, if you have it, we're going to go to Esther in a moment. I know I told you. But if you go to Psalms 84 just for a moment, verse 1. This has been our text the last couple of weeks. It will be for the next couple. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. Now, you don't know to say that unless you've been there. You're speaking from experience, right? Otherwise, you'd be saying, I hear that your dwelling place is lovely. But that's not what it said. It's saying firsthand, how lovely. I'm testifying, how lovely. How lovely. I've, I've been there. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. You can put the word King of Kings Almighty. My soul yearns even faints. Another translation says even pants. <laughs> pants. For the courts of the Lord, my heart and my flesh cry out for. See, it's not the courts he's after. The courts is the process to meet the king. Not enough to live in the courts. Oh, I need to know him. I need him, not his palace. Today we're going to talk more about that. Because too often in the body of Christ, we stop at the palace. And we have palace, you know, the fun of the palace. We have the blessings of the palace with the splendor of the palace. And we stop short of the king. We don't make it to the king. But this is not what he's saying. He says, my heart, my flesh cry out for the king, for the living God. Oh, my my." My soul yearns for the courts of the Lord because the courts are the entryway, the hallway, so that I can see the king. And he talks about even the sparrows found a home, a swallow, a nest for herself, or she may have her young. A place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my king and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. Not visit it. I don't pray God. I don't want a visitation of God. I want a What? A habitation. I don't want to once in a while show up and have a visitation. Oh, God, may I inhabit. He says those that inhabit his praise will know the heart of the king. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever and ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on you on a pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of weeping, they make their they make it a place of springs. In other words, you can't keep me in my sorrow. No way. I, it's going to burst forth with songs of joy. And they make it an, ever, an everlasting place of springs. The autumn rains cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God. They all stand before him in Zion. Goes down here. He says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand that this world has to offer. Now, if I, if I was going to be honest... That's probably not something that we really necessarily live for. If maybe we were to do an inventory of our calendar, we might notice that maybe we don't really long so much for his courts. If we just look over the last maybe seven days or the last two weeks, we haven't given a whole lot of days to his courts. And that's not meant to be, to be shameful. It's just like, well, it's easy to say it. It's another to, to live it, isn't it? 
Better's one day in your course, Lord, than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. The Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Uh, wow. Okay. That's the overriding text. The journey we're on is that we might know his heart and know the king. And I wanted to wrap the series of Reignite. We can't, I've been holding this. I wanted to preach this at the beginning of January. And I really sensed in my heart, Wayne, wait until the very end. Let's continue to talk about, about you know, the Lord, about, about his presence, about prayer, about his Holy Spirit. Let's talk about those things. And then, and then, we maybe we're ready to talk about what it is to move into the inner chambers of the King of Kings. The intimacy of him. That our hearts would somehow have gone through this journey of longing to know him more than just what he can do for you. See, what he can do for me, he does a lot. I pray God for healing, and that's a good thing to pray. I pray God for people's salvation. That's a good thing to pray. I pray God for answers to prayer for the will of my life and, and my, my workplace. And Those are good things to pray. Those are good. Don't hear me wrong. But they might not always be the best. Sometimes the best thing is just to stand before his presence and be awestruck in who he is. And I worship you not for what you can do for me, because then realize... It's still about you. You know, one of the things, Daniel and I, we talk about this frequently. When we sing songs, be careful we don't sing songs. A lot of the songs, worship songs, are about us, what he can do for us. So the song's really about me. <laughs> and we need to somehow move into the place where it's all about you. God, I worship you. I praise you. You are worthy to be adored. Not for what you can do, but because of who you are. You are worthy to be adored. And until I get there, until I get there, and that's a journey, until I get there, I will not really know the heart of the king because he reveals his heart to those who are the inner chambers. The secrets of the secret place are with him. And yes, his word reveals God but only by the illumination of his Holy Spirit. And the illumination of his Holy Spirit illuminates when we move into the inner chambers of the king. And there we know him. Now, I'm not speaking as one who dwells there. I'm speaking as one who longs as the psalmist does. How lovely is your dwelling place. My soul, my flesh, pant for the courts of the king. Pant for you. And so... Esther, how does this have to do with Esther? Esther is a living example of how God can take one who is the most remote, uh, unassuming, ill-prepared, and bring them who she made effort to get into the inner courts of the king of her day. And this becomes an example. If that had not happened the Jewish nation would have been annihilated in that period of time. If she hadn't made it from there to there, from there, and those who are hearing by podcast, I'm, I'm pointing down and pointing up, from the lowest to the highest, then you never would have had the Jewish nation. That would be a tragedy because that would speak towards our end times. So, Father in heaven, help us to understand your word this morning. I pray it be done justice. I pray your word would speak for itself and illuminate our hearts with insight from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Esther chapter 2, verse 16. 
We're going to read it, verse 16, 17. She, Esther, was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Verse 17 is the key. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The topic of what I want to share today is seeking the heart of the king. And Esther's a great example for that. You know, fame and fortune can motivate people to do some crazy things. And we don't have to look far to see some crazy things. You know, some mothers would, you heard the expression, some mothers would sell their kids. Some kids would sell their mothers for fame and fortune. I know of one man in the Bible who actually gave up a lifetime inheritance for a bowl of beans. His name was Esau. Here's a concept I'm going to come back to. You can write this one down. It's worth remembering. What impresses you attracts you. What impresses you will attract you. Call it uh, bait and hook. What impresses you will attract you. Whatever you pursue becomes your purpose. You want to know your purpose in life? What are you pursuing? What do you pour your finances towards? What do you pour your energy and effort towards? What do you do in your spare time? What passions? When you go to your happy spot, where is it? And then we can begin to answer some of these questions. Whatever impresses you attracts you. So what impresses you in life? And secondly, whatever you pursue, because what you're attracted to, you would begin to pursue, whatever you pursue becomes now your purpose. You define your purpose. And so don't, you know, we can say whatever our purpose is, but the reality is, is your purpose is what you're pursuing. That becomes your purpose. Makes sense, doesn't it? So, story of Esther. Esther would be faced with a fundamental question. The same question that has gone down through the ages, the same question I have and you have. And the question is, is what are you pursuing? Are you pursuing as a follower of Jesus? And I'm starting on that premise. Are you pursuing the king or are you pursuing something of his kingdom? And they're not the same. Let me talk a little bit about the kingdom of Esther. I'm going to jump back and forth between them, try not to make this confusing. So I'm going to slip back into the story of Esther because she's our example in chapter 1, we understand the kingdom in her time, the king's kingdom was pretty impressive. We're given a little glimpse of his back patio. His back patio is described in Esther chapter 1, verse 6. A bit of a snapshot. The gardens, this is just his gardens. The gardens had hangings of white, blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen, purple material, to silver rings, marble pillars, couches of gold, silver on mosaic pavements goblets of gold and pearl and costly stones and on and on. You get this picture, picture here of opulence of his kingdom. And, of course, that's just his patio. That's just his patio. You know, if we're not careful, we too can have a handout for the king to answer prayers for us while neglecting him. 
We can have a handout if we're not careful because there's a lot of good that comes from him. And maybe we're just not aware that he longs for us who will love him. I've wondered if kings and queens of our lands and times present and in times past have asked themselves the question, who will love me more than the things I can give them? It's one of the problems of the wealthy. Who will care for me and not just what I have? So you can have some of it too. And it's a legitimate question, is it not? I, I happen to wonder if God sometimes doesn't ask, where are the people who are more interested in touching my heart than in sampling my splendor for their needs? They want their needs met, but what about my heart? What is the heart of our God? Esther. Esther's success, and it is a success story. It's a great story. Her success was her God-given desire to seek the heart of a king rather than the splendor of his kingdom. I'm going to talk more about that next week because we're going to unpack this. We're going to see she had opportunity to go after the kingdom like everybody else, and she chose not. She chose to go after his heart. Again, next week I'm going to unpack that a lot more. But this week, I want us to start into that place. I come back to that premise again. Whatever impresses you attracts you. And whatever you pursue is your purpose. It's your purpose. So what is it? What impresses you today? And what is your purpose? What are you pursuing in this world? What draws you to itself? Well, ancient Greek writings in the story of Esther. Let's talk about uh, Xerxes the king for a moment. His name, it took me forever to pronounce his name. You know, that's the weirdest pronunciation. Xerxes. Xerxes. Please don't call your child Xerxes. People are going to have a hard time trying to pronounce that one. Um, In ancient Greek writings, uh, there's a historian who, uh, Herodotus, who characterizes Xerxes as one of the three most formidable Persian kings ever to exist. Let me tell you a little bit about this guy, Xerxes. He's the guy in Esther. He's the king. He was described by those who knew him, and it's come down through the writings, secular writings. He was described as the tallest, most handsome of them all. He was described as ambitious and a ruthless ruler. He was a brilliant warrior and a jealous lover. Those were descriptions that were passed down over the last... 2,500 years of this guy. Okay, so, okay, tallest, handsome, ambitious, ruthless ruler, brilliant warrior, jealous lover. All those words, those traits just don't stop on the throne. I can guarantee you that some of the same spirit of conquest and competition probably would permeate every square inch of the women's quarters of the palace. What happens with the king flows down through the kingdom. And there would have been vicious competition in the palace. It doesn't take a whole lot of my imagination, and I imagine yours, to picture the competitive spirit that would have been rife in the king's harem to be the queen of that guy. You want to be queen of him. We're all too familiar today with reality shows on TV. So I, I, I slipped onto a uh, computer and internet and I searched out some reality shows. <laughs> Ooh. 
I'm really out of touch. My reality shows was Survivor and The Amazing Race. And that was a long time ago. And it was just row after row of reality shows. Uh, Bachelor in Paradise, Love Island, Summer House, Perfect Match. And some of them I wasn't even going to mention because I didn't want to hear if anybody laughed knowing that that's something that they watched. I just didn't want to hear that. You get down, I do understand this though in reality shows, you get down to the last few contestants and it becomes ruthless in a lot of the shows. That's why they have such a large audience. It stirs something up in us. You can be sure that the women in Esther chapter 1 and chapter 2, that the women in Esther were not spending a year, because last week we talked how they would spend a year preparing to see the king, a whole year. Preparing. You can be sure that that year of preparation wasn't just about cultivating character. No, the finalists were doing everything in their power to claw their way to the top of the list, to be the last of the last. I imagine there were petty rivalries, infighting, jealousy, envy, setting each other up, collaborating, manipulation. You can imagine. We, we don't have to imagine. We have reality shows to watch. We can see it on our televisions. Esther would not have been able to escape this. The reason I take time to talk about this is we need to get into this because this is how she had to fight against this. If we are to understand the heart of the king, we have to understand something of the heart of the people around us in our own. And Esther would have been in the middle of this kind of stuff. One commentator on Esther describes the time of Esther. He describes it this way. I'm just going to quote him. This was the place to get, this is the harem of the king to become queen. This was the place to get high on seduction. This is the place where women cultivated the ability to use their charm to get what they wanted. Namely, the highest office a woman could hold in the kingdom. This was the place where women had available to them all the jewelry, all the perfume, all the cosmetics, all the clothing needed to make them physically attractive and alluring to this lonely king. This was the place that would make Miss Universe fade into insignificance. Yet it is in this heady environment that Esther, God's lovely star, shines brightest. Now to make matters worse in the story, to make matters worse than they already are, Esther had every reason not to fall in love with the king of Persia. She had every reason not to. She was Jewish. Xerxes was not. He wasn't even one of her people. Her parents died under the dominion of Persia. That was his dominion. We aren't told how her parents died, but they died under his dominion. Now, don't tell me that's not going to leave a little sting in your heart towards someone. Somehow his dominion, he probably wasn't on the throne at the time, his predecessor was, but it was his dominion. Um, in Esther chapter 2, verse 8, it says that Esther was taken to the king's palace. She didn't volunteer. She was taken. And, uh, and she was forced to prepare for a pageant to be paraded before this king that there's all kinds of reasons for her never to want to really want his heart. 
And they, they estimate between 400 to 1,500 women, women would have been competing in this. 400 to 1,500 women competing. Her heart could have been so bitter. And I say this because this, I think, relates. We need to say it. Beloved, this morning, beware of an embittered heart because you will never know the heart of the king if your heart's embittered towards him. It's the subtle little things. Maybe you've had an unfortunate childhood. Where was God? And so when we talk about pursuing the heart of the king, he seems distant and always ever will seem distant because your heart is embittered towards him. Because he wasn't there for you. Like her. Maybe there was a downturn in your physical condition and you really needed him to bail you out and it didn't happen. Maybe you had a poor upbringing. Maybe you were discouraging, times of discouraging uh, your faith. Your faith was, was lost or was threatened. And, and so you are there and uh, you're struggling with an embittered heart. And this is something just to lay before the Lord. He welcomes it. He welcomes it. Although I believe Esther's beauty attracted the king to her, her beauty attracted the king to her, beauty because she was purified and because she had a passion and aroma. And I spent a lot of time last week talking about for six months she was prepared with myrrh, for the last part prepared with frankincense. We talked about that last week. I won't share that again. What that means, I believe that initially attracted the king to her, but I believed though he might have married Esther for her appearance, he kept her because of her heart. Might have been attracted to what she looked like, but what stole his heart was her heart. Isn't that always the case? What stole his heart was her heart. Now, might I say, we can go through the shenanigans and, and go through all the promises before God, but if you really want to stir the heart of the king of kings, it'll be what's in your heart that will stir his heart. And your heart is that secret place that maybe only you ever know. People closest to you may not. Well, in the palace of the heavenly king, I believe all of us, we are chosen for potential, but we're kept because of passion. We're chosen because of potential, but you're kept because of passion. A passion for your name, Lord. A passion for your heart. Again, this is a book about worship, is it not? The story of Esther is a revelation about a peasant who becomes educated in the protocols of the king's presence. She fell in love with the king while all the other young girls fell in love with the palace. The other girls fell in love with the prestige, the luxurious food, the opulent surrounding of a kingdom. But she would fall in love with the king. You see, consumers eat at the king's table with only an occasional obligatory nod towards the king, but they're enjoying his table, consuming his blessings. They love his gifts. They like his power, his provision. But the question is, do they love him? Do they love him? Worshippers, worshipers on the other hand, can nibble at the table, but are totally... Is, is that where it is? Can, do you worship at the table or is your worship focused on him? The table is not what it's about. Simply put, Esther realized that without the king, this is, 
I think this is the breaker here. Without the king, the king's palace is just another big empty house. And without the king, the kingdom is pretty empty. If I don't know his heart, then serving is a chore. And therefore, it's left to the bottom of our schedules. When I get time, I'll serve you. It's a chore. I do it out of obligation. Why? Well, his palace is enough for me, not his heart. Hmm. I don't know if you can relate to the house of the Lord. You know, if the king isn't here, then what's the point? I heard somebody say years ago when I was starting out in ministry, a lot of church buildings on Sunday morning, the lights are on, the heat is on, the seats are filled, but the Holy Spirit is not there. There hasn't been a heart that's come in there who seeks to know him. They've come to do a religious service. It's a high holy day after all in our Western world. Instead of knowing the heart. I just want to stir our hearts this morning because that's what Esther, truly I think, the significance of the story is an example. How lovely is your dwelling place? My soul longs, even pants, for the courts of the Lord. And Esther would be the living example. There are many spiritual concubines around you and I. Day in, day out, people who have moved in to stay after one life-changing encounter with God. They go to services. They go for another miracle. They go for another flash in the pan and yet have failed to seek his heart, preferring instead to content themselves with the benefits of lounging around his house instead of being in the inner chambers with him. And the world continues to rotate. I encourage you make a decision not to settle for the church palace lifestyle of pleasing me. We must go for the princess lifestyle to please the king. Time to become the queen of the king. Concubines may have had an experience with the king, but only his bride would actually get the king. Not everybody gets the king. Not everybody at all. Why does that road? Who never know the heart of the king. So I want to take you then to the next portion, the last portion of this morning. Esther chapter 2, verse 17. Follow with me. Verse 17, let's read it. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women. She won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Let's continue. And the king gave a great banquet. Esther's banquet. He called it after her. Esther's banquet. For all his nobles and officials, he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberty. And the virgins were assembled a second time. Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Verse 20, but Esther had kept secret her family background, her nationality. Remember, she's Jewish, he's not. Just as Mordecai had told her to. Mordecai, remember, Mordecai here is her older cousin. Kind of took her in. She continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, so she didn't tell the king that she was Jewish. Verse 21, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Nathania, Teresh, two of the king's officers guarding the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Verse 22, but Mordecai found out about the plot and told Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit back to Mordecai. 
And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. Sucks to be them, right? Impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the annals of the presence of the king. Let's just talk for a second about the king and his security. The protocol around this king would have been crazy. Extreme security. Picture, picture the president of the United States and the crazy security. You don't just amble in to chat with him, the president of the United States. And, and picture the king of their day, even more so. You see, in the kingdoms of that time, there was an atmosphere of absolute distrust. Because guess who often took over the king's place? A family member. And they would kill a family member to get it. Happened all the time. You couldn't even trust your own relatives. <laughs> Some of you are going, I don't trust my relatives. Okay, back then, your relatives were seen as a threat to your kingdom because that's how they got to the place. So your trust is waning at most, particularly, particularly in the Persian kingdom. They would often be assassinated by family members, and they would often be assassinated by who they felt were their trusted counselors. Happened all the time. So their security was crazy. The Persian kingdom of Xerxes stretched to show how big it was. It goes from modern-day India all the way over to Ethiopia. He ruled 23 nations on three continents. Big king. An elaborate protocol would have been in place. It would have always been 24-7, elaborate protocol to protect him. So if you want to see the king, is what I'm trying to get at. If you want to see the king, yeah, right, good luck. By the time people would actually make it into the outer courts of the throne, it would have taken a lot of effort and work and time. You see, part of the lesson of protocol is the importance of waiting. I want to talk about that for a second. Because if you go to your concordance and look up the word wait or waiting in the concordance of your Bible, you would discover it's there all over. Isn't there some place in the book of Isaiah that says, those that wait upon the Lord, finish it for me, will renew. But you got to wait. Now that's tough in our 21st century because we don't wait very well. I don't have it with me because I left it. We, when we have moments of gaps in our life, we pull this thing out. We don't like waiting. We flip through stuff that probably doesn't mean a whole lot, or we could do it once or twice a day. But it's easy. We don't. We fill in our gaps of waiting, even driving. You know that's why there's such a huge fine and points given if you get caught with a phone in your hand while you're driving because we, you know, stop at a stop sign. Oh, we can we can get one more in. And we don't like waiting. We don't like waiting in the doctor's office. We don't like waiting in lineups. We don't like waiting in traffic. We don't like waiting for the service to start. We don't like waiting for somebody to show up. On and on and on. Waiting. And yet, here it is. Waiting, waiting is very significant when you are meeting the king. And if you're not prepared to wait, you will never get into his chambers. Because you just don't saunter in. He's the king. It's not like God is, you know, yeah, I got, you know, eight, seven to eight billion people, and so you take your turn, you know, take the tag and sit in line. It's not with God. But there's a place where our hearts become prepared in waiting. And this was key in this whole setting of Esther, this waiting, this preparation. My, my title is Seeking the Heart of the King. Last week was 
prepared. How, what do we need to do be, to be prepared to meet him? How much time do we spend waiting? Well, uh, our culture desires instant gratification. I don't think there's any greater enemy to intimacy than impatience. Isn't that true? There's no greater enemy to intimacy than being impatient. Part of the lesson of protocol is the importance of learning to wait. If someone is truly important, they are worth the wait. Often people would wait for weeks to have an appointment with the king. We only wait for what we value. And if I don't wait on him, I don't really value him. One of the problems maybe today is that we come late instead of, I remember my parents who dragged us early to church. So we would get there early. My dad had a philosophy, you aren't 15 minutes early, you're late. To church, to Sunday school, after we got up at 5 o'clock to milk the cows. And it was always something in which we just smiled at. Those that lived closest, we had somebody right next door, came in the late, came in the latest. But there was something I discovered as a young boy that in that preparatory time, not a time to tap your, you know, we didn't have cell phones back then. During that time, to prepare yourself for what God was going to do. There was something that stirred the heart that did something that only waiting could do. Only waiting could do. If something is truly important, they are worth the wait. We only wait for what we value. When it's all said and done, waiting is worship. Waiting on Him is part of worship too. We want to see things happen. Just waiting on the Lord is a part of worship. Just sitting in His presence and waiting on the Lord. When Daniel sings a song, stir, up it, stir it up again, stir it up again, and he repeats it multiple times. It's called waiting. I'm waiting before you. I'm waiting not to get. I'm waiting because of who you are. Sometime back, I preached a message on the tabernacle, the Old Testament tabernacle. And in that message, I talked about the process of getting to the Holy of Holies. And it was a picture. It was an example of getting to the Holy of Holies of God. We start through the place of thanksgiving. It's the outer court, similar to Psalms 84. How lovely is your dwelling place. My heart longed for the courts. The courts are the place of thanksgiving. We start, and then we moved closer into the inner place, the place of praise. We exalt him. We lift up his name. We bless him. We speak of him. And then as we continue to do that, you will discover in that long procession, you will come before the Holy of Holies. And now you're into the inner chambers of the king. But we, that part, we like to jump into the inner chambers quickly. You can't. You just can't. It's impossible. You can't get to the king quickly. There's a process called waiting, and waiting is part of worship. Waiting is a key part of worship. Don't minimize it. Mm. Well, um, uh, you will notice that the deeper you go into the palace, the fewer people are there. The longer you wait, the less will wait with you. The hungrier you get, the less people are around seeking his heart. They, they fly away. <laughs> They go another direction. And when you finally, the crowd thins out, and when you finally get to the bedchambers of the king, you will only find at the bedchambers the most trusted servants there. 
in the privacy of those moments of intimacy. Very few get there. Audiences with the king would often shout from outside. They would shout from the outer courts. They would shout from the gate. But those in the private place need only to whisper. Those from the outer courts, their voices are lost among many. Those in the inner chambers, but a whisper, have the ear of the king. Oh, God, we want to see his hand at work. We want to see his hand. It's not from the outer courts. It's the inner chambers. It's knowing him and being known by him. That we would move the heart of the Lord of Lords, the heart of the king. Worship is the protocol that protects the king. And qualifies the visitor. Here's a comment. I think I put it up here for you to see. Influence flows from intimacy. Access comes from relationship. Influence flows from... When we see... Why don't we see answers to prayer? Why don't we see healing? Why don't we see that? Because waiting is an issue. Because we've not really pursued his heart. We want his hand. We expect him to do it. Haven't haven't you made promises, God? And we say that all the time. You're faithful. You have to give away promise. Instead of, instead of, God, I'm just going to wait on you. And stay there and press in and pursue his heart, his desire. Move from thanksgiving to praise into the place of worship. And not do it once a week, occasionally when you have time, after you've finished other things and you have nothing else better to do. Doesn't really work that way. Never does. Influence flows from intimacy. In intimacy, we make a difference. We see something happen. Access comes from relationship. In the privacy and relaxed intimacy of a family residence, think of yours, I think of mine. I think of my kids who come into my family or, or siblings who come into my, fam, into my home. Uh, my family members don't have to really ask for anything because they're inside versus if you're a neighbor, if you're outside, right? They have access. And that access gives them influence on me. They have my ear because of their close access to me. And they do, and that's true with you too. Likewise, Esther, in the story of Esther, had a dry run early in her married relationship with King Xerxes. The story that we finished with and I'll close. Her older cousin, Adoptive parent, Mordecai, accidentally heard of an an assassination plot. And uh, how's he, because he's on the outside. Somebody's going to kill the king. He's on the outside and he needs to tell the king, but no way can he get to the king. He's on the outside. So how does he, on the outside, get this valuable information to the king himself? And history would be very different today if God didn't have his young deliverer by the name of Esther already in the life of King Xerxes. He had strategically set all this up. As queen of Persia, Esther had access to the ear of the king in the royal bedchambers. And I want to say this is my point. Influence flows from intimacy and access comes from relationship. You see it over and over. I like the story of Moses. Moses was successful. The great deliverer of the children of Israel from Egypt. Not simply because of his natural skills and ability. 
or even his knowledge of the ways of God. Moses was successful because when he had opportunity to either stay at the foot of the mountain or to pursue him at the top of the mountain and everyone else says, you go, we're not prepared to go, Moses would go up and would wait in the presence of God. Moses' ability to do what he did was not because of his skills. His ability to do what he did was because of his access. And out of his access, intimacy flowed out of that relationship. He was the great deliverer. You see it over and over. Out of that place of intimacy. Out of the place of intimacy. You see flowing the influence. With relationship comes access. With intimacy comes influence. And if it is true... If it is true that with relationship comes access and with intimacy comes influence, then in this story, there is actually a very tense moment there because the Jews were in trouble because the moment Haman, I've just introduced a new character, Haman showed up in Persia. A foreigner had managed to snag second top position next to the king himself, Haman, and he was absolutely wicked. And the Jews seem powerless to do anything. Oh, but there's Esther. You follow me? But there's Esther. She has the heart of the king. Haman is second in command, but Esther has the heart of the king. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to compare this. We have an arch enemy. His name is Satan. <laughs> and Satan is he called, he's called the accuser of the brethren, the devil himself. His misplaced sense of justice. He is the accuser. He constantly, he constantly goes before God and he is saying, you are guilty, you are guilty. He is guilty, she is guilty, and, he, and it's true. It's true, we are. Our sins condemn us. They're guilty. Wipe them out. The devil knows the law. But here's the thing, you and I, we know the lawyer. The advocate, his name is Jesus. And out of my relationship with Jesus, the law gets overturned. The enemy wants to accuse me based on truth, partial truth. Because my advocate, the lawyer Jesus, has said, but I paid his, pay, his price. Now he is clean. She is clean. She is no longer condemned. And because of that, she bypasses all the judicial system because I bore it on me. We're in a moment, we're going to gather around the Lord's table. He bore it on himself so that we might be elevated to the heart of the king. Hallelujah. That's enough to say, praise you, Jesus. Thank you, my advocate, my lawyer. Thank you, I worship you. He's my lawyer. You see, Satan can't, can't play that. Haman in the story is second to the king. And he can, and we're going to talk next week, he's going to go right to the king with a bunch of things. But Esther is in the chambers. Because she has the king's heart. She has his heart. Well, whispered words from the place of intimacy can be more powerful than shouted petitions from the court. God intervened to make a way where there was no way in the story of Esther by bringing Esther through the back door of the king's palace. God brought her there, gave her favor. She must seek it herself to win the heart of the king, and she would change history. 
I want to close. With relationship comes access. With intimacy comes influence. This is never truer than in the kingdom of God, where our our intimate relationship with God gives us access to his throne and will influence the world. Influences the world. Prioritize his presence. Work on your relationship with the king. Never forget that when you seek his face, he remembers yours. When you seek his face, he remembers yours. Uh, Relationship reward, relationships rewards are access. If I pursue him, I will have access. If I have access, I will have influence. One well-placed whisper can change your life. It can change your destiny. It can change your family. Often we're not seeing answers because we haven't pursued his heart. Bottom line. So, Father in heaven, I thank you, God, that, Lord, this story is more than a history story of deliverance. It's a story of passion. It's a story of your example that as she would pursue the heart and gain access through intimacy, that there would be changes take place, that, God, I pray today that story is For me, it's for us. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts, that we would seek not your hand. We would seek your face. Your face, O God of Elijah. We seek you, Lord, not for what you can do. We don't want to shout from the outer courts. We don't want the splendor of your palace. We don't simply want for what you can do for us. We long for you. Lord, I pray you would stir our hearts because I believe that that's there in abundance here this morning. But things have stolen it from our hearts. And so John would say on the island of Patmos, he would say, you've become lukewarm. Where have you lost your fire? Where have you lost your passion? Where have you lost your first love? Because the love of the world has gotten in. And we've begun to seek God only for what he can do for us. And therefore, we become the center of worship. God, I pray, forgive us. Forgive us. And Lord, help us to change the trajectory of our heart's desire, our purpose, because what we pursue becomes our purpose. Oh God, may our pursuit no longer be things and stuff, because it will all die at the end of this age. It'll go back in the box. But what's eternal? It's what comes out of your heart. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, the prayer here five months ago was, God, we are believing for you to revive this community. But we know you won't revive it because we're asking for something, and you're saying, do you care about me? Do you care about what I think? And, God, I pray that the answers are coming back, yes, yes, and yes, Lord. We care about you. Our heart's longing is for you. And, God, may our lives demonstrate that even as you draw us back to that place today. Thank you. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this story. God, I pray, help us, God, to be able to not only make a commitment out of emotion that's not enough, but that, Lord, we begin to put in place a discipline, a discipline that would take us from the place of the outer courts to the inner chambers with you, that we would know you. God, if it weren't possible, you wouldn't give this option. It is possible. 
And so, Lord, I pray your beckoning would be a beckon that many would say, yes, we desire to know you. Bring it so, Lord, pray. Just going to ask as every head is bowed and every eye is closed, just for one more second here. If you're here this morning, and there might be somebody, a man, a woman here this morning, and you have not made that decision to follow Jesus, you've heard everything said, you've heard the scripture, maybe there's been a stir in your heart. You want to know God. You want to know him. You've not asked him to forgive you, and you've not asked him to wash your sins away. And if you're saying, Pastor, I want to know him. Maybe you don't, but I want to know him. I'd like to pray with you and begin the journey. Begin the journey of your pursuit to know the king. He will wash your sins away. You will be called a son and daughter of God this very moment. But it's a lifetime pursuit to know him deeper. You're saying, Pastor, I want to know him. My heart is not right with him. I want to be right with him today. If there's somebody quickly, would you raise your hand? I will pray with you. Is there anybody here this morning? I don't want to miss the opportunity. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Anybody? Yes, sir. Thank you. Anybody else? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Anybody else? Quickly. So everybody, would you pray this prayer together with me? Father God, everybody together. Father God, I come before you in the name of Jesus. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Wash my heart clean. I have sinned against you. But today I acknowledge Jesus is Lord. I accept you as my king. I receive you as my master, Lord, and Savior. Come into my heart and change my life and now manifest yourself in me. I surrender my life to your lordship. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.